Hello and welcome to Access Chat. We've got a full roster today and we're really glad to welcome back Kate Nicholson, but she's brought with her Dawn Gibson and Carice Hill. Um, so Kate, first starting with previous guests, welcome back. Um, it's it's great to have you back talking about pain, uh, which is also your Twitter handle, um, but it's also a really important topic. So please tell us what you've been up to and, and why you've... Uh, brought along Dawn and Chris today to talk about uh, with us on Access Chat. Sure. So I have been a guest before um, a few times as an individual. And then in March, when we launched uh, the National Pain Advocacy Center, um, I came on uh, and we did an Access Chat about pain. Um, and now that we are the National Pain Advocacy Center, it's no longer just me. I have brought my colleagues. <laughs> in the organization with me. Um, so uh, Don Gibson um, is uh, on the board of MPAC uh, with me, and she uh, is a founder, uh, co-founder of MPAC. And um, also, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, founded a, a very acclaimed Twitter chat for people with pain and uh, clinicians who want to learn from, from patients about the patient experience of pain called Spoonie Chat. I encourage all of you to follow her on that. Um, and Chris Hill is part of our uh, Community Leadership Council and has taken a big role in sort of our digital presence and um, our storytelling um, and is really a, a significant leader um, in, in NPAC. So I am delighted to have both of them with me um, to talk about what we're doing. Great. Fantastic. So if I may turn to you first, Dawn, um, and it's, by the way, we love Twitter chats here, no great surprise. Um, <laughs> what prompted you to, to get on Twitter, jump on social media and, and, and create that voice and that platform? Uh, well, as a an African-American spondyloarthritis patient, I wasn't represented in that space. And so I, I didn't really find my people. And I found out about the spoon theory through a friend at work. And, you know, after a few years of, of uh, living with arthritis and chronic pain, I was like, well, I don't know, like, this is not changing. You know, I, I have an expectation of progress that something should improve. And um, the materials I saw weren't improving the explanations of how to seek care, how to participate in our own care. None of that was improving. And literally all the same questions I had were everywhere, like all the time. Like, it, am I weak if I take anti-nausea meds? <laughs> um, it, you know, why does it hurt to exercise? Like all of that stuff. And I thought, oh, somebody's got to do something here because this is ridiculous. And so I went the went in the broad spoonie movement rather than the spondyloarthritis space because that was still pretty hostile. That has improved somewhat, but it's still uh, difficult. So I started my chat as a broad uh, spoonie chat for people with any rheumatological complaint. And then uh, people with other disabilities started joining in. And now I have caregivers as well. And then some um, parent-child situations, all of that. Um, the uh, spoon theory was coined by Christine Misrandino. And basically, Christine uh, was sitting with her friend in the diner and she was her friend was asking her, well, what is it like to have fibromyalgia and lupus and various other medical complaints? And 
Christine used all the silverware uh, on the table uh, as as a proxy kind of for money or a budget that your body has for doing. So it could be a budget of energy, a budget of how much pain a person can tolerate, uh, a budget of how much sensory experiences a person can tolerate. But the thing is, you don't make your budget. The disease makes the budget. So she used spoons and other silverware and she kind of retracted them uh, to say, well, you have all your life to live, all you're doing to do, but uh, you only have this many um, this many spoons to do it. So that's that's how, if you see somebody talking about, oh, I'm low on spoons or here, I'm sending you a spoon. That's what they're talking about. Isn't so... Uh... I'm familiar with it, but I, not all of our audience would have been. So yeah. I think that's a, a really useful um, explanation. And I think it's a it's actually a really useful uh, theory in general for, for people yeah. to uh, to be able to explain energy and, and, and the, the additional toll that, that living with conditions like this takes upon you and 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 and, 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 and just the, the additional effort that it takes that people don't see. So I think it's 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 really useful for that. And thank you for starting a community that impacts so many people in our lives. So I know that it impacts uh, people close to Antonio, uh, impacts my wife because she has cervical spondylosis, which is not something I've talked about, but it's something that impacts on her life. Um, and that um, so many people don't talk about pain-related conditions or the... Um, or the way that the, the medical profession dismisses them. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I'm always glad to have advocates on Access Chat because I think it, it it's such an under underrepresented, undersupported uh, area of yeah. our community. It, I, I, I'm going to not monopolise the chat, so I, I just quickly go to Keris and then open it up to Deborah and, and Antonio for, for questions. So, Chris, how how did you get involved in the community? Obviously, I see you're wearing a, an arm brace, so um, but, but there's a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> but, but please, tell that's us my spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, so I'm wearing a wrist brace. Um, I was diagnosed with spondyloarthritis, just like Dawn, um, when I was 26 years old and I had been living with chronic pain uh, for over 13 years before I was diagnosed. And um, I sort of fell into advocacy. Um, it wasn't intentional. It was never something I dreamed of. I don't think it's anything we, any of us really dream of, um, but I just began, um, screaming really into the void when I was diagnosed. I was a college athlete and suddenly I was like, I couldn't get out of bed. And um, so I just, I really needed attention. I was selfishly saying like, look, this is happening to me. Um, and then I realized by just telling my story on Facebook, on Twitter, that it resonated with a whole lot of people that I never even knew were dealing with pain because it's so stigmatized and people don't talk about it that I realized that there was a bigger piece of my um, my life work here which was saying yes to this opportunity to speak for and with other people who weren't being heard 
Um, within a year of being diagnosed, I'd been to DC to advocate um, with Congress members. I'd been featured in the Associated Press. Um, and it was all because I just didn't say no to like requests for my time um, because I was desperate for people to know what spondyloarthritis was. Um, and so it just built from there. I started a blog. I, you know, my Twitter followers grew um, and, you know, got invitations to join boards and committees and uh, most recently to join the National Pain Advocacy Center with Kate and Dawn. Um, and I, I just love um, disability Twitter. It's one of my groups and especially disability trans Twitter. It's it's a family. We, you know, we support each other. We know each other. Um, so I'm really glad to be here, part of this chat. And I, I love that point because we are all a family. We are all together working and we really appreciate Disability Twitter too. We also appreciated that Twitter verified access chat because it's very difficult to get verified these days. And so that was a very nice nod from Twitter saying we care about what you're doing because we've been doing access chat. We were talking about it last week. I I made it a year longer. It's eight years. We've had uh, more than 12 billion impressions. I mean, we do it every single week. I think of those eight years, we maybe took off three times generally because it was actually Christmas day. So, uh, you know, but I I think it's so important that we talk about it from all these different lenses, because I've talked about this before, but my daughter with Down syndrome, who's now 34, lived with chronic pain for years. And I knew something was wrong, but I didn't understand what was wrong. And she didn't really have the words um, to explain to me what she was feeling. She couldn't even, because, and Kate and I have talked about this when I featured on my other show as well, but the way people perceive pain, the way people identify they're in pain is very different. The way, I mean, I remember when my daughter was at the very worst um, of her journey at that time. Um, I, I've never seen anybody in that much pain. And as just as a parent, it was it, seeing somebody that you love in pain, yeah, it, it's very, very difficult for you as well. So, uh, but they had a little tiny chart. It was on the wall. It was uh, where they put the nurse's name and everything. And it was really small across the room. And it had these little um, faces, smiley faces. And Sarah couldn't even see it from her bed, much less understand what they're looking for. And she also likes people to like her. And so as um, I, I forget, you know, which one of you just said it, but it, well, I think you all said it. There's so many stigmas associated with it. Just be strong. Come on. Oh, don't be in a bad mood. And, and it's really, uh, it, it's, it's a very, very complicated issue. And then you put the war on opiates on top of it. And I just, I feel very grateful that you're all you know, speaking up and being heard. You could have just gone into your apartment and, you know, not said anything, but thank goodness, just the followers that you've got on Twitter shows you how much your voice is needed. So I, I just appreciate that you're exploring this in a way that we're not seeing explored. Because Kate, you had mentioned people with chronic pain are the largest, there are more people with chronic pain 
in the disability group. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how the sheer numbers of people that are impacted. You're on mute. You're on mute. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, from a global perspective, um, uh, poorly managed chronic pain is the chief cause of, of disability. Um, in the U.S., uh, 20 million Americans live with um, what we call high impact or what we would call disabling pain because it basically is pain that uh, regularly impacts your ability to work or participate in life activities, which is the classic definition of disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and uh, but 50 million have have chronic pain. I actually think the, the law covers a much a, a much broader group than just that subset. So it is probably the largest disability cohort as well. And yet it is not uh, really in the strategic plans of almost any disability group I've ever seen. So it is a siloed, uh, invisible um, element of the disability community. And we appreciate that you you all have been on top of it from the get-go. Um, I mean, I think it's been maybe four years that you've covered this with us, right? So, um, so we definitely appreciate you. Um, it's also a really important um, intersectional disability issue for the reasons that you just mentioned, um, Deborah, because often initial um, reports of pain um, are based on how someone uh, is able to report it and whether they are taken as being credible or believable. And the problem is that all of these sort of structural problems of racism and ableism and, and gender bias um, creep in. Um, and so, um, you know, there are, are studies that show, you know, at least in this country, that um, providers will rate the pain of uh, Black people as, as being less severe, right? Um, and certainly, uh, there are lots of issues with people with um, developmental and intellectual disabilities and, and how, you know, their pain is communicated um, or not. And I know, I know your daughter, Sarah, had, I mean, uh, life-threatening pain. <laughs> this was not, you were not talking about a, you know, you're talking yeah. about a condition that, and and her ability uh, to communicate with providers and their willingness to listen really, if, you know, risked her life. So um, these are serious issues. Um, they are, you know, profound disability issues. Yeah. And, and I remember a, a dentist, I know that Antonio wants to ask a question, but I remember a dentist one time I had taken my daughter into a special dentist because she had, I thought she needed to have a tooth removed and it turned out, you know, that she had to need, she needed five teeth removed. And the dentist said, if this were you and me, Deborah, we would be on the ground screaming right now, but because Sarah has such a high threshold to pain, she can't tell us what's happening. And it just was so scary because at first I thought it was a blessing that she had a high tolerance to pain, but pain, it tells us things. So, uh, yeah. Um, Antonio, let me turn it over to you. Um, so, uh, um, well, welcome everyone. It's great to have you all with us uh, today. No, so, okay, we have you before and, you know, you have been following you know, what is happening in, 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 the, in this area for, for quite some time. Uh, we know that something. No, we all look fine. We all look perfect, but there's something hidden that doesn't allow us to be, you know, what we would like to be, or it limits sometimes our uh, abilities to know. In in, a, in that case, my wife, you no, know, she looks perfect, but nobody will say, "Oh, she's in pain." So that that's a 
that's an element that makes uh, uh, pain in, invisible. So, in in or in the years that you are following, what uh, evolution have you seen in terms of uh, in in the medical community recognizing uh, as as a disability and what countries have already recognized pain as a, a disability? Well, I mean, you know, the definitions of disabilities really vary, of course, according to laws and, and what's being measured. Um, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, globally, it is recognized as the chief cause of long-term disability. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure, you know, I think there are real cultural differences in how train, you know, pain is, is perceived and treated. Um, so, but I'm, I, I don't know any country that's doing a good job, frankly, with pain. Um, I think it is still, uh, you know, uh, a very hidden uh, and undermanaged condition. Um, and, you know, in the US, you know, we recognized that it was important and then um, opioids were prescribed very broadly. And, and now I think uh, people are, you know, sorry that they recognize pain sometimes. I mean, people with pain become blamed because, because of this rather than, you know, or sort of th throw out the baby with the bathwater and the individuals involved as well. So I think in a way there was a, a, a the beginning to sort of acknowledge the importance of it, but then a an over, overly simplistic solution, even though I used opioids as, as, as have others in this group and needed them. Um, but that doesn't mean that it was, you know, the right solution. One size fits all solutions rarely work when you have a condition that is as varied as, as pain. Um, but the problem is now there's sort of guilt by association and, and fear. There was already stigma about pain, you know, pain in, in Greek means punishment, right? That we've, we've had, you know, stigmas about pain for centuries. Um, but uh, now on top of it, we have sort of the opiate stigma, um, which has it's kind of been guilt by association. Um, and so I think uh, we're actually sort of returning pain to the dark ages, um, at least in this country. And I think in some of uh, some other countries in the Western world uh, as well. Um, and certainly in, in certain countries, um, pain is pain treatment is, is still uh, very, very poor, even at the end of life, even in, in sort of hospice and, and palliative care situations. So there's a real unevenness as well in terms of, you know, how pain is regarded, who gets access to medication um, and all of all of those issues. Well, lucky in, in many other areas, people tend to, to use uh uh, Google to search in terms of what can help them, how can they find solutions. They can even go to groups on Facebook or, or on Twitter. Uh, what have you observed? You know, and sometimes you know, they don't end up finding the, the right information or they can be put in, into harmful situations. Uh, what have you seen in, in that space that, you know, the good and the bad, what have you observed there? Yeah, um, I'll take that for a second and then I want to pass it along to my colleagues who are in that space quite often. Um, I, I would say that um, I see a lot of intelligence and empowerment going on in the in the patient community and a, and a pretty good um, pretty good sharing of, of information. Um, I tend to to find uh, to find it fairly useful. Um, I, I know that there have been issues that some of my friends and colleagues who are also part of NPAC who are providers will sometimes get frustrated when people go on and then get uh, wrong information, uh, which can certainly happen online. 
Um, I think there's a pretty good native intelligence in the in the patient community, but I'm I'm curious to sort of hear um, hear what Don and and Carice think about that. Uh, put Carice first. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm ready. I'm good. Um, I think what I've found is, like Kate said, there's a lot of intelligence within both the broader community as well as specific communities. Um, I felt a lot of helpful information on Twitter. Um, I find that patients who've been um, sick for you know their whole lives or for a decade um, <laughs> often know more than their treating doctors about their specific condition. Um, and a lot of times we're diagnosing each other, not like officially, but we'll, we'll say, okay, based on these symptoms, it does sound like you have a form of inflammatory arthritis, go see a rheumatologist. Um, I think that we do provide as a community, uh, useful next steps for people. Um, I think there is a fuzzy line when it comes to providing medical treatment advice, um, so personally, I try to stay away from that and, and instead give links to verified resources. Um, when, I, when people reach out to me who are newly diagnosed with spondyloarthritis um, and ask, you know, where do I find support? I will say, well, you can join this Facebook group or you can use this hashtag on Twitter to find people like you. Um, but make sure you research anything someone suggests, you know, don't just take it, you know, without um, actually looking into what it means for your condition. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag on, on um, one hand, I feel that there are uh, advocates and peers who are functioning at a high level and are offering good information and are, trying to encourage people to have good habits around participating in their own care. But there's also an aspect uh, of infiltration from bad actors into our space, and that continues to be a problem. So whether it's people trying to sell a particular item all the way to people who um, have malign intent, just in general, um, there's, there's some of that. But the, the bigger issue I find is the one that's the hardest <laughs> to to get at, which is the um, the issue about why does health advocacy exist? And it should be embarrassing. And I mean, it, it should be deeply embarrassing to anyone taking money for healthcare that somebody wants to contact me about their healthcare. Just to be clear, I am a very nice woman in yoga pants <laughs> and I care a lot. I, I care really hard. I, you know, I, I go hard. <laughs> and I go to ACR and, you know, I give posters at American College of Rheumatology. I'm going to be live tweeting um, the conference soon. I call researchers on the phone. You know, I will um, really get in their faces and say, what are you doing about this? Because I have 300 women who need to be studied and you don't, you haven't done anything. You know, what are you going to do? But this is outrageous that advocacy needs to exist. So as much as, you know, there's all of this um, concern uh, and for various reasons about the space and, and what's happening in there, 
the bigger question is why isn't there trust in healthcare? Why isn't healthcare trustworthy enough so that I can go do something else? We could all just, it could be like fields of dreams. We just go out into the, into that cornfield and do something else, (laughs) but I will never get into that cornfield. I'm 45. I know I won't make it in there. So as much as this, this other stuff is important, it's the trust that, that needs to be fixed. And I can't fix it. It has to come from the prescribers. It has to come from researchers. It has to come from payers, policymakers, everybody else. And, and if I may add, if patients are going to be in that space, which we should, we should be at the table, um, equally involved in all those conversations from start to end, um, not as an afterthought, we need to be paid equitably for our work because it is work. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I would also add that that one of the um, ideas with the way that we put NPAC together is that we have a, a big community council of people with pain. We were founded by people with pain, but we also have clinicians and scientists and providers and um and the idea is to bring everyone together. Um and that's that's important. And I, I just wanted to comment that, that the reason that our communities exist is because there's a gap and because we've been ignored. And 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 that's just to echo what 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 Dawn was saying. You know, ideally it should be embarrassing that, that we're here because we should have been listened to and 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 invited to participate. The fact that we have to do this. Um, is is unfortunate and is regrettable. However, we're here, we're necessary, we're going to continue, we're passionate about it. I know, I know Deborah's got some comments to make, but I just wanted to echo what 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 Dawn was saying and 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 it is a problem that we're ignored frequently. Yeah, I agree. And and, and I also um I would love to explore more, uh Don and Clarice, uh if you can uh about I mean, once again, why somebody would decide that a person that has darker color skin than I do, for example, um, is less credible about their own pain is ridiculous. But I, you know, one thing that I think that we're all realizing is because I know as a woman, a woman saying that she's in pain has been discounted forever, you know, but it, it gets even worse. It appears to me if you're a person like my daughter, I mean, I took my daughter to, um, to a psychiatrist to help her during that time when we didn't understand what was going on. And I told the psychiatrist that she had Down syndrome, but um, it was a terrible experience. Though it was just a terrible experience. She was my daughter was so discounted, and um, like she doesn't. I, I don't know. It's just really troubling. So I would be curious, Don, from your perspective, and also Chris, if you can talk about it from the perspective of not being a white white male. I mean, sort of, you know. So. Um, even though I think white males are discounted as well. And it goes back to agree with you, Don and Neil, in that why do we have to have, you know, medical advocates? Why don't we, I mean, there's so many things broken, but I was wondering if we could just dive in a little bit about why, you know, you are not going to believe Don, be, Don, believe Don over me, for example. I'll go and I'll say that I'm in pain. Yeah. It's really uh, multifactorial. And as an African-American, I can say that um, there's a, 
a kind of split view of African-Americans that in some ways were like super powerful, like ultra physical, ultra sexual, ultra, like everything ultra. So like think of somebody winning a gold medal in hurdles, right? <laughs> you know, that that is, uh, th- that's something um, people would, would think about us or someone who can dance forever or whatever. Uh, but then the other side of it is that we're untrustworthy, that we're uh, prone to drug addiction, you know, all this other stuff. Um, so the idea of um, of, of a, a unified humanity uh, around us is um, is difficult for a lot of people. And I'll say that some African Americans, uh, well, we all are are like marinated in this sauce, right? So African Americans can act these things out as well. So it's the idea of racism isn't that there are. Uh, a uniform set of um, victims and perpetrators. It's it's that a toxicity is shaping the lives that we live, and you know we're hurt in different ways, but we're hurting. Uh, so there's that. Um, if you look at spondyloarthritis in particular, there is a sensibility that uh, of around the disease that it is a white male disease, even though we're getting more and more evidence that that's not true. Um, but we don't have studies of black women. So um, when a black woman presents with something that is atypical, according to the um, the guidelines or the understanding, the conventional wisdom, that's going to be an uphill battle. Uh, then the next thing is going to be um, how do we quantify the pain? Well, good luck quantifying your pain. <laughs> It's, it's going to be very difficult. And then even if you can get the diagnosis and you can get some type of treatment, um, you better hold on to the people who believe you. Because if you switch into a different uh, care team or anything like that, then it, it's kind of like pledging a fraternity. You have to go back and, uh, you know, kind of reaffirm what your diagnosis is. And so it, it takes up all this time. So there's there's all of that. Um, but we also have to ask ourselves, why do we believe in the biological sense of race, in, in race medicine? And in North America, race medicine is as old as at least 1619, if not before. So our history of structural, legal, and social apartheid means that we believe that there is um, a innate binary racial characteristic. And this is um, this is serious because when we believe that we can't see beyond that, and like I said, it's affecting everybody. So if we're thinking about getting a clinical trial, uh, some people um, may be reluctant to participate because they don't have trust, and then some people are reluctant to pursue the patients because they. They may not believe the patients will participate or they're not willing to do the hard work or they're not willing to humble themselves and say, I have to learn from patient advocates. Uh, I have to figure out what to do because this is serious. So there's all of that is is um, mixed together and it's it's very difficult. You know, the last thing I'll say about this is I am a member of the loving generation. I am in the first generation of people uh, born to legally married mixed race couples in this country. I'm 45 in November. Okay. (laughs) So think about what that means. People really have not shaken the concept of biological race or even the idea of these social categories as 
as being immutable and, and, and all of that. So there's no time has passed and any other big, um, you know, milestones that we've had in our country, they, they may be important and they may be interesting. They may be inspiring, but they don't solve the history that we carry, that everyone carries. How do I follow Dawn ever? Um, <laughs> it's also, I'm, I'm saying all this at like seven in the morning where I am. So whoever's listening, just, you know, if I take like a five second pause, it's because I took a quick nap. Um, <laughs> I think I'll go about answering that question from sort of a different angle. Um, I'll start with the fact that, um, I think we all know, but not everyone realizes or thinks about the fact that almost all medical research still only researches white, cisgendered, non-disabled men and uses the results of that research on everybody else. So as someone who was assigned female at birth, um, as a person of color uh, who appears white, all of that medical research is used on my body. And we know like there is evidence, there's just not much evidence and people, it's not mainstream yet. The fact that um, people who are not white, cisgender, non-disabled men react differently to the same results, you know? So like with COVID research, um, you know, we react differently to, the medications used to treat COVID, to the vaccinations that have been developed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, I, and that contributes to the pain conversation all over the place, um, um, both with the fact that research is not done on people whose bodies are in pain um, in different ways than the group I said, the white men, um, and that pain is discounted among those groups. Um, but I want to focus a little bit more on the transgender aspect. So as a trans person, um, I'm always juggling which part of my body to address with doctors, whether I advocate for yes. being correctly gendered by my care team, which impacts my mental health. And I will say that pain is not just a physical thing. It manifests mentally um, and vice versa. So I'm constantly juggling, like, do I address my chronic pain only that's, that's centered solely around my inflammatory joint disease? Or do I try to wrap in my whole identity, which includes my gender, which impacts my ability to, um, to be medication compliant, which, you know, is the worst word, but, um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, there's, there's not much research about transgender people and pain and the disparities in addressing that pain um, because we haven't even really gotten to the point where um, medicine is, is acknowledging that trans people exist. Um, doctors still don't know how to treat transgender bodies. Um, like I, as a trans person, like, I don't even know I'm taking testosterone I don't even know if that impacts my blood work results and how they're read. 
Like if my blood work results are red, as if I'm in a female body, you know, is it in normal ranges for a female body or is it in normal ranges for a male body? How much testosterone impacts that? So just simple things from patient level all the way up to research level. Additionally, transgender, so people who are transitioning and decide to get surgeries, top surgery, bottom surgery, a lot of times because those surgeries have not been researched enough to streamline them so that they have good outcomes, uh, often they cause disability and chronic pain. So a trans person deciding to um, have bottom surgery, which is surgery on the genitalia, um, often goes into that knowing that it, there's a high percentage of people who come out of those surgeries with complications, <laughs> but gender identity and presentation is so important to people like me that we decide to go through with those surgeries with those risks, you know, being aware. So in a way it's like our bodies aren't causing the pain, the surgeries are, but it's still our bodies. So it's, um, it's just, you know, things to think about that aren't really discussed in this yeah. area. Wow. Which is why you are so important in this conversation. Thank you, Kate. I know you wanted to comment too, but I'm blown away by this. The depth of this conversation is just so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's striking to me. I, I was just going to sort of summarize a little bit the um, you know, some of the issues, but I, I, um, you know, we're not even, um, you know, there are the issues about believability and who is who is taken as trustworthy. And that's, there's actually a philosopher named Miranda Fricker who wrote about this with respect to the Me Too movement, which is, you know, who's believed um, and whether they're believed based on their identity is a real problem. And it just, it, it because pain is invisible um, and because often the initial presentation of pain is, is subjective reporting, pain is one of those areas that, that raises these issues more than just about any other. Um, and then on the research side, it gets very complicated. And I mean, I've heard Don say so many times, yeah, I have European blood in my system. <laughs> Guess what? Like you can't, I mean, it's just, it's crazy, you know, the way we create these absurd binaries that don't exist. And even on the research side with the binaries, you know, we're just beginning to, in a very biological, in animals, sex assigned uh, idea, you know, to sort of see that there are differences in pain processing. So our NIH just in 2014 decided that maybe we should add some female lab rats in some of our biomedical understanding. And, you know, at least initial, initial studies show that males and females process pain, chronic pain with using completely different cells in the immune system. So in males, it is glial cells. And that's been the big, the big idea about chronic pain in the last 15 years is glial cell activation. But guess what? At least in rats, it's T cells in, in females. And I just saw a study today that showed that different kinds of spinal, they've, they've just figured out that different kinds of spinal stimulators work better for, um, you know, for males than females. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's also complicated in terms of pain. There may be, you know, uh, gendered aspects of it. Um, and then you have, you know, then that's just in a binary sense. That is so simplistic, right? That's not even beginning to look at the multiplicity of who, who we are. Um, 
And, and again, also when we have these sort of DEI type conversations in the pain world, the other thing that really frustrates me is that we, again, we put people into tiny little boxes. And so we talk about African-American pain or, you know, yeah. and, you know, what happens is, you know, we're all inter intersectional. And so there are people who really get left out, like um, older people ex may experience more pain. Um, and there's almost no study uh, at all of aging African-American men. There's almost no research at all. So if you fall in an intersection, um, <laughs> um, you're not even being looked at yet. You're not even being considered in the government reports that are finally figuring out that, you know, there are disparities and inequities here. So it just, it, I mean, we could go on about this forever, right? It's, it's. No, but it's so huge. It's such a big, big topic. And it's, you know, I, my husband now having dementia, you know, Parkinson and epilepsy and watching how people just totally ignore him. He's not even a real person anymore. He is still a real person. He's still there, but it's, it's just really amazing that how can we be already 2021? And we, I, I'm just amazed by it. Sorry. And I'm having problems saying it, but yesterday I was on a, um, I was doing a webinar for um, in Europe. And once again, I, we were talking about in the middle of the thing, I realized I didn't have my, you know, pronouns on and I put it on. And some of the people were like sort of teasing me about it. You Americans, you Americans. But the reality is we have to dig all the way down to what it means to be a human being. We have to do this. And I'm sure some people think it's total pain in the butt, but this is really ridiculous how we, we do medicine at all. It's just, you know, how we don't believe people when they say they're in pain. And I love what Corey said at one point that um, pain is not just physical. It's not just physical, and that's such an important point, especially during these traumatic times during the pandemic. It, I think a lot of us are understanding. I remember we had said early on in the pandemic that 65% of Americans after this was over were going to have post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, I think it's going to be much higher, and it's not just Americans. And I love Carissa's baby that uh, just made an <laughs> appearance on screen, too. So, this is um, mad, Hi. <laughs> Oh, my Madge is beautiful. Yeah. So I, I, I just, I'm just, I continue to be shocked at how we discount so many human beings. And I know that Neil wants to come in, but Kate, let me uh, give it the floor to you and then um, I'll give it to Neil. Yep. Neil's go for Neil. I don't. <laughs> Neil. Yeah. Okay. So um, have I unmuted? Good. Um, so anecdotally, I know what you're talking about to be true right my my wife is thai and didn't get diagnosed in the uk people didn't listen to her some of that's cultural some of that is uh, around the you know the, the some of the language barriers you know first language not being english but people generally not paying too much attention doctors being too busy um going home having her own you know, people around her diagnosed with uh, with this condition. And I also know that the, what, the way that medication affects us, same medication has profoundly different impacts on us and profoundly different uh, you know, outcomes for us. 
So I, I know this anecdotally to be true, and I know that we are this sort of mesh of different things. That intersectionality is super important. So it's really, um, I think, important that when we start pushing for research, that we push for diverse research and everything else. And I, I, I've taken the mic a little bit with my my description here, but uh, but I am that essentially. Um, but yes, I, I, I know that uh, Antonio's got uh, uh, something he wishes to, to get in, so I'll hand over. Um, yeah, I can tell you, uh, once my, uh, myself and my wife, we were both sick. Uh, we had uh, very similar symptoms. She was uh, feeling uh, a little bit uh, worse th than me, and we went to the doctor. You know, we went there, you know, the doctor is in front of us, we describe uh, what we have, Uh, he, look, he, you know, he looks at us, he, he makes analysis, he, he, he tries to see how, how we are. And at the, at the end, I got, I got prescribed a lot more than she. So I got, you no, know, she prescribed, the doctor prescribed me about you know, three things that I had to take, and only, she only got one. And in reality, I was feeling much better than she was. So just, just making a point about what we're talking here. Excellent. We've all experienced it. Yeah. We're all experiencing it. Well, so why don't we fix this? This is ridiculous. Yeah. Thank goodness for these three. So I, uh, yeah, absolutely. We're we're um super glad to have you. And um we have reached the end of our allotted time. It's gone too quickly. Uh, obviously, I think we'll have you back again because this conversation has further to run. Um, but I'm really, really looking forward to you. Um, joining us on Twitter. I think it's going to be a live one with so much Twitter experience. It's going to be really great. So uh, just remains for me to thank Barclays Access, MyClearText and Microlink for helping us keep the lights on and being here every week. So thank you very much, Kate, Dawn and Karis. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Yes.